0: But this morning, we're at the end of the book of Habakkuk, and, uh, and it is a, a beautiful and I think very moving uh, conclusion to the book we've been studying over the last six weeks. For those of you who maybe are just jumping in with us, I want to give you a, sort of a quick summary, a rapid flyby, if you will, of the things that we've seen in the book of Habakkuk. Um, if you're intrigued by this or you want to know more, you can always go back and watch uh, the previous studies uh, online on our, on our website or on the app. But we begin with the book of Habakkuk in chapter one, where the prophet Habakkuk comes to God with his fears and his concerns. He says to God, how long will we cry out to you and you won't respond? Your people, your covenant people are ignoring you. They're evil. They're wicked. They're not doing the things they should do. And why aren't you rendering justice? God, where are you? And we talked in that very first week about the the fact that God reveals himself to those who seek him, that it was proper and fitting for Habakkuk to go to God and say, I'm confused. I don't understand what's going on. I I thought that you would do something and you haven't done anything. We love the fact that he approaches God with his questions and that God responds. The catch, though, is that God's response is something different than what Habakkuk had anticipated. So he says to God, why aren't you doing anything about the wickedness of your people? And God comes back and says, oh, I I am doing something about the wickedness of my people. In fact, I'm raising up the Babylonians or the Chaldeans to come in and lay waste to the people of Judah. I'm going to punish them by raising up their enemies to, to, to decimate their country. Habakkuk then comes back and says, well, well, that's not exactly what I wanted. And you'll remember as we were studying that, that uh, last part of chapter one, Habakkuk comes back and says, he tries to tell God who he is. God, you're merciful and you, and you're, you're, you, you are uh, just and you're holy. How can you use people who are more wicked than us to punish us? That That's not who you are. And we talked in that study about the fact that sometimes we try and cram God into our boxes. We try and make him fit what we think he should be rather than allowing him to instruct us in the reality of who he is, allowing him to sort of explode uh, our boxes with regard to who who we see him as being, recognizing that God is infathomable, will always be growing in our knowledge of him. So at the end of uh, chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, Habakkuk stops and he says, but I'm gonna wait and hear what God's response is to my complaint. I'm gonna listen to what he says to me and I'm gonna pay attention to what I say back to him. And God responds then by calling Habakkuk uh, and giving him some instruction. He says, I want you to write these things down. I want them to be remembered. He gives him instruction. He gives him expectation, right? And he gives him some encouragement and assurance. He says, look, I see the wickedness of the Chaldeans. I also see the wickedness of my own people. And I am going to do something about that. But I want you to understand there's two different kinds of people. There's the kind of person that is so swollen with what he knows and who he thinks he's bloated on himself. And that person, the end of that kind of life is destruction. But there's another kind of person who lives by faith. The righteous person by faith will live. God calls Habakkuk to sort of not be stuffed with himself, but rather to be stuffed with a trust in who God actually is, right? Then he goes on after that, to declare five woes. And this is a couple of weeks ago. Five woes at the end of chapter two where God comes and affirms the futility of sin and the fact that, that you can't escape from the consequences of sin and that God sees it all and, and will render justice. So then, as we come to chapter 3, and we began chapter 3 last week, we see this incredible psalm. We see an incredible psalm where Habakkuk reflects upon who God has been in the past, who God is in the present, who God will be in the future. We see Habakkuk reminding himself, calling to remembrance the fact that God is a creator, that he's a warrior, and that he's a savior. And then at the end of that psalm of remembrance, at the end of that psalm of remembrance is where we pick it up this morning. After Habakkuk has reminded himself of who God has been, who God is, and who God will be, after he's reminded himself of this creator and warrior and savior, this is Habakkuk's response in verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. What we see in the prophet Habakkuk is a weakness. He is utterly shaken inside and out to the core by what he has seen of God and what he has heard of God's word. He has listened to God's declaration. He's remembered who God is and was and will be. And in light of what he's seen of God and what he has heard of God's word, he is destroyed. He says, my lips quiver. My body shakes. My bones essentially turn to jelly. I don't know if you've ever been in a circumstance where you felt like you were absolutely shaken inside and out, trembling, quivering, wrecked, and weakened. But that is Habakkuk's response to his view of God and his understanding of what God has said. I remember uh, when I lived in the mountains, I lived uh, up at Hume Lake for about nine years, which is in Central California. And in order to get groceries, you'd have to go all the way down to Fresno or Visalia, one of those, Reedley maybe, and you'd load up all the groceries you'd need for a couple of weeks, and then you drive, you know, you'd do, you'd do all your doctor's visits, go to the movies, all those things uh, while you were down in the city, and then you'd drive an hour and a half back up into the mountains uh, where you'd live, kind of removed from society and whatever. Uh, we had this Nissan x and on one particular day we, uh, we'd gone down the hill, we'd packed our truck full of groceries, we came back up the mountain late at night so it's pitch black, it's, uh, it's really dark outside and we're unloading our groceries, so we're unloading groceries out of the back of our Nissan Xterra, we're carrying them in the house and it's a little bit of a distance from the back of the truck to the house and there's no light there's not very many street lights up there, it's very dark the only light is the illumination in the back of the truck, you know when you open up the back hatch, there's a little dome light thing so we're carrying groceries in and out, my friend Eric is with me and we're, we're, uh, he had gone down the hill with us and so we're, we're unloading groceries and I had carried a load in and when I came back out, uh, I, something felt weird in my vision and I look, uh, Eric is standing at the back of my Nissan X-Tera and he's trying to grab as many bags of groceries as he can, but standing next to him there's just like a weird shadow and I can't figure, I, like my eyes won't catch it, like I can't quite get my eyes to focus on what it is, it kind of just looks like a weird sort of dark blob and I I cannot figure out what it is. And then as my eyes adjust, I get a little bit further out of the house. I look and I realize that standing literally right next to my friend Eric at the back of my truck is a bear who's also very interested in carrying some groceries, I think, right? (laughs) So uh, my friend Eric, who I love, standing next to a huge bear uh, that's like kind of looking into the back of the truck. Eric hasn't noticed him yet. So my... uh, (laughs) My instinct kicks in. And when I first moved to Hume, they tell you, hey, there are bears around here. Occasionally you'll see a bear. If you see one, don't run away. You know, like you'd basically just fall to the ground if you have to cover your ears because they'll try and eat your ears or what, I guess. But uh, they love ears. Uh, but one of the things I'd been told at the time was uh, you have to try and make a sound. So just use whatever you have. You know, whatever you've got, you try and make a loud sound to get rid of the bear. If you've got car keys or whatever, you know, shake your car keys at the bear and just see if you can scare it off. So I walk out of my house. I see a bear standing next to my Eric threatening to eat all my groceries but in that moment you guys my everything just kind of turned to goo right like I you know when when Habakkuk talks about when he talks about his bones feeling like they have rottenness in them I just felt like my entire person turned to jelly I'm shaking a little bit my heart starts to beat I can feel the blood rushing into my head I don't really know what to do my friend's about to get killed by a bear and so I reached down to my hip where I keep my keys uh where I keep my keys attached and I pulled them off and I remember it's the stupidest thing ever I remember going the bear couldn't have cared at all about my stupid keys in fact the only person who cared about my keys was eric and he turned this way right so he turns around and he's like what are you doing and i'm like <laughs> and he turns the other way, and says, ah! you know, and then of course he runs, and the bear kind of sifts through, takes the Oreos, whatever. He, he's had very particular taste I finally realized that I could press the button on my car alarm, which I'm not going to do because it'll set off out there. But I press the button on the on the alarm, and then the horn the horn starts to honk, and the bear runs away. But that's the closest uh, sort of the, the closest picture I get to what Habakkuk is describing at the beginning of, of his response to remembering who God is. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Let me ask you this morning, church. Do you tremble at what you've seen of God? Are you overwhelmed by who God is? I'm, I'm put into the reminder of things that Isaiah said. Remember Isaiah 6-1. In Isaiah 6-1 it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings with two. He covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I want you to picture Isaiah in this context, picture yourself in the context, right? He has a vision of God in his holiness, seated upon his throne, with the angels flying around. And then I want you to picture Isaiah seeing all of that, and very calmly and comfortably grabbing his latte from Starbucks and just taking a sip, right? No, that's not the response. I want you to picture isaiah in response to seeing this vision of the holy god upon his throne thinking you know this is this is cool and everything but i forgot to set my dvr to tape and so i'm gonna have to slip out a little bit early excuse me seraphim excuse me angelic messengers i got some other appointments i got to get to no in light of his view of who god is He says, woe is me, verse 5, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1, thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word... I'm also put in mind of the verse in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 where it says the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I wonder as I studied this in preparation for this last message, I see Habakkuk as he has a clear view of who God is and what God has said, I see him shaken and trembling and decimated inside and out. And I wonder if sometimes our view and our response to God is less than what he's worthy of. I think sometimes when we think about God, we think of him as a buddy or we think of him as a pal. We think of him as somebody, you know, that, that we can sort of pay attention to occasionally. But a true view of God and his holiness should shake us. When is the last time you were shaken? When is the last time you trembled at God and his word? You see, I think that for many of us, God in our lives is very small. God is very small. And I don't mean that he's literally very small, but I think our approach to him is to treat him as if he is small. We treat him as something or someone insignificant, and I'll say, and if you're taking notes, I want you to think this through, when God is very small to you, everything else in your life will seem really big. But when God is very big, as he truly is, when you see him as he is, everything else in your life seems really small. When you have those perspectives in place, when God is seated on his throne and you see him as he is and your bones ache and your lips tremble and your knees knock and your hands sweat because of the holiness of God, everything else gets put into perspective. Many of us find ourselves arguing with God or frustrated with God or shaking our fist at the heavens because our view of God is too small. And practically, functionally, I will say that there are times as a shepherd in this community where I'm grieved, even in the midst of a worship service like this, by the way in which we treat God with disdain. And it's not meant to shame you or not meant to make you feel weird, but I would love for us as a community, especially for those of us who are family here, it's, it, you know, exclusively those of us who are family here, to think about the ways in which we approach the worship of God, to think about the fact that many times we roll into this place like we roll into a movie theater, and we roll out of it kind of the same. We roll into it with a casualness. We roll into it with a, with a sense of, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up a few minutes late. I don't want to watch all the trailers. If I don't like this song, if the preaching goes too long, if I don't like what's happening, I'm going to roll onto something else. And I want you to say that's not offensive to me. It is a declaration of your view of God. Doesn't hurt my feelings. It makes me sad for you. Because your view of God, if it's small, means that everything else in your life probably feels really huge. Habakkuk, after reflecting upon who God has been and who God is and who God will be, creator, warrior, savior, says, I I can't even stand up. My bones are turning to jelly. I'm shaken to my core. I am wrecked by my view of God. Yet, he says, back to Habakkuk chapter 3, he says, I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. We're gonna see two different responses from Habakkuk here at the end of this book. Two different responses. The first one is to quietly wait. To quietly wait. And I don't know if you remember all the way back to chapter one, but if you'll remember the second verse of chapter one, what's Habakkuk saying? How long? How long? how long, O Lord, am I going to be waiting for you? How long before you dispense justice? How long before you show yourself to be the one I think you are? God, why are you making me wait? That's Habakkuk chapter one. I will tell you, Habakkuk chapter three, this is a transformed person. He is not the same. He is not the same. As we'll come to see, his circumstances are exactly the same. Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed at all from chapter 1 to chapter 3, but his response to those circumstances is different. He's a transformed person. And part of that transformation is rooted in a clearer view of who God is in his, in his you know, infinites. That's probably not a word. Don't write that one down. Right? In his hugeness. He says, in light of what I see, I will quietly wait. The word there that's translated quietly wait is a word that means rest or to dwell or to settle, settle down and in. Right to kick off your shoes and, and chill for a little while. He says, in light of this huge view of God, I will quietly wait for God to do the things he's promised. I will rest in anticipation of God doing the things that he, will pro- he has promised. I'm gonna settle down. I'm gonna stop making all this racket. I'm gonna stop shaking my fist at the sky. I'm gonna stop allowing myself to be agitated and I will rest. I will dwell in the confidence of who God is. The first thing we see him respond and the first thing we want to walk away from this morning if we're trying to to take an application is that when our view of God is big, when our view of his goodness is big, when our view of his power is big, when our view of his love for us is big, then we can kick our shoes off and relax. We don't have to be so agitated. He says, I will quietly wait for God to do the things he said he's going to do. I'll quietly wait for God to do the things he said he's going to do. The first thing we see is him resting in God. I think of... Uh, Isaiah 30:15 Thus says the Lord God the Holy One of Israel in returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength but you were unwilling I like this verse. God looks at his people and he says, in returning and rest, you'll be saved. What's he mean returning? That's about repentance. It's about not depending on your own strength, not being stuffed to overflowing with your own wisdom and your own strength and your own ideas and your own ways of tackling issues. He said, no, when you return to me and rest, that's when you find salvation. In returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. I I don't know that as Americans, we think about quietness and trust being equitable with strength. We think about noise and racket and shaking fists and rattling swords, right? You gotta be the squeaky wheel if you're gonna make change happen. God says, not so in my kingdom. In my kingdom, it's quietness and rest that brings about transformation, that brings about strength. Quietness and trust shall be your strength. Returning and rest, you'll be saved. This is what Habakkuk has understood. We see Habakkuk gets it. Instead of being a man who yells for how long in chapter one, now he is a man who will settle in, who will dwell or rest in God's plan. But it's not only rest. Not only does he say I will sit quietly or wait quietly, not only will I rest and dwell in what God has promised while I wait for God to do what he said he's gonna do. Not only that, we also see his second response. The first one is, is resting or being quiet. The second response of Habakkuk here at the end of this whole journey is joy. Joy. Rest and joy. Rest and joy. That's this this double response. And for some of you sitting in the room who are in the midst of one of those seasons where you've been shaking your fist at the sky or you've been making as much noise as you can or you've been doing everything within your strength and your power to try and wrangle your circumstances, the idea of finding joy in the midst of that drama probably seems absolutely alien. There are some of you who haven't tasted joy in months because you've been trying to figure out what to do in your life to solve your problem. Listen to the way this joy is made manifest here. Back to Habakkuk chapter three, he says this. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, by the way. He says this in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. A couple things I want you to see here. Um, He has already, in the psalm that just preceded this, he's already talked about who God's been in the past, who God is in the present, and who God will be in the future. His response here takes the same form. He says first, though there's no blossom, right? Though there's no blossom on the tree... And though there's no grape or fruit on the vine, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vine, both the grape and the blossom are in anticipation of future reward. He's thinking about a payoff in the future. The blossom itself, you don't do anything with. And while some of us like eating grapes in this context, eating grapes was not what he was interested in. He was interested in the wine that would be produced from the grapes. So he says, even when my future hopes are gone, right? Even when there's no blossom on the fig tree and there is no fruit on the vine, which means in the future, I got no hope. Even in the, when my future hopes are gone. Then he says this, even though there's no olive on the branch, right? The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. He's talking there about olives. He's talking about grain. The, the, the base staple of the lives of the people of Judah. That's something that would satisfy you in the present. He says, even though I have no anticipation or hope for wine in the future, right? Or figs in the future. Even though I don't have any grain today and there aren't any olives on the tree. That's talking about the present. He has no hope for the future. He has no hope for the present. And he says, also, if, if my herds are cut off The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the the stalls. The idea here is that your livestock is a byproduct of your past investment, right? You have herds and flocks because of the way that you managed them in the past. If you don't have any herds and flocks today, not only will you not have any flocks in the future, but it's proof that what you did in the past didn't work. So he says, if I have no hope in reaping a dividend of my past investments, if I have no pleasure in the present, and I have no hope for the future, what's he talking about here? He's talking about utter and total destruction, and utter and total pervasive hopelessness. No hope in the future, no pleasure in the present, and no reap of reward from the past. Even if that's the case, he says, we, we would assume that if he, you know, maybe at the height of our holiness, we would go, even if there's no fruit on the vine, even if there's no olive on the tree, even if all my herds are gone, then you know what? I'm going to be content, right? I'm just going to be like even keeled. That's where I'm setting the bar, right? If I don't have any hope for the future, no pleasure in the present, no reaping of dividends from the past, then I'm just going to try and have a good attitude and not be a jerk, Right? That's where we would typically set the bar. I'm just going to be, you know, like moderate in my response. That's not his response. He says, when there is no blossom and no fruit, when there is no grain and no olive, when there is no herd and no flock in the pen, then what? I will rejoice. Rejoice. His first response is to quietly rest or wait upon what God has promised. The second one is to rejoice And not rejoicing in the lack of hope or rejoicing in the lack of pleasure in the present or the lack of dividend from the past. He's not rejoicing in those particular circumstances. He's rejoicing what? In the Lord. In the Lord, amen. In the Lord. You see, for many of us, we think about joy being rooted in what we have or don't have. And so the idea of not having fruit or not having cattle in the pen, I mean, some of you may be farmers, but probably most of you aren't. The idea of having no financial hope for the future or no enjoyment of the present, or no, no payoff from all of your labor in the past, The thought of having joy in those things feels very foreign. Why? Because in our world, our joy, what we think of as joy, is rooted in what we have. So if you don't have anything, and you have no hope of having anything, and even the investment you made in the past you thought would pay off today is not paying off, there is no joy because we've always sort of thought, and we've trained ourselves to think that our joy comes in what we have or do not have. But that isn't what Habakkuk has learned, and it's not the life of the people of God. It's not the the righteous who by faith will live. Now the righteous who by faith will live can recognize that even if I don't have anything and even if I'm not going to get anything and even if what I had goes away, I can rejoice. I can find joy because joy isn't based on what I have or don't have. Joy is based in who he is. Joy is based in who he is. Faith, for, for the record, is not a method of getting what we want. I think there are probably people who come to the Bible or who come to church because they, they have some sort of a, uh, some sort of an exchange they wanna make, right? We've talked before about the fact that, that God's house will not be a house of trade. Jesus says don't make it a house of exchange. It, it, a lot of people think well I'm gonna come and I'll sing the songs and I'll do the good deeds and I might write a check and put it in the offering plate and then God's gonna give me the things I want, right? And, and the whole thing feels like a, like an exchange. Like you do the Christian activity to get from God what you want. And so as, you're, as you think about your faith increasing, you think, well, if, I, if my faith increases, then that means I'll get the things I'm after. If I have more faith, then I'll get the things I'm after. Habakkuk's saying that's not what faith is. Faith is not a method to getting what we want because he doesn't have what he wants. Faith, rather, is a confidence in the God who is creator, warrior, and savior. Psalm 34, eight says, "'O taste and see that the Lord is good, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, who doesn't take refuge, for example, in the fruit of the vine, or in the blossom on the tree, or in the olive, or in the grain, or in the livestock in the pen, a man who doesn't take refuge in what he has or what he can accomplish, a woman who doesn't take refuge in what they can get or what they can obtain, but rather recognizing that God is what is good, and God doesn't change, even when there's no fruit or cattle or olives. God, who is Creator, should be the center of our faith. For many of us, uh, faith is boiled down. This is something Daniel said actually in our study meeting two weeks ago. Dr. Daniel Kim, who was here last week, and it struck me. He said, for many of us, uh, our faith is outcome based. Our faith is outcome centered. Does that make sense? We we put our faith in God because we have a desired outcome we want to achieve. Even if that's your own spiritual growth, even if that's your own holiness, for some of us we come to faith hoping to get something. We come to God hoping that he'll give us what we want. But the reality that Habakkuk shows us, the reality that Habakkuk understands is that faith is not outcome-centered. Faith must be God-centered, regardless of the outcome. Faith must be God-centered, not outcome-centered. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Back to Habakkuk chapter three, I'll rejoice in the Lord. Not only does he say that in verse 18, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That in the original language literally says, I will joy, right? So it's an active verb. He doesn't just say, I'm going to feel joyful or have joy inside my inner being. He says, I will joy. The picture is of someone doing cartwheels. In fact, I think uh, Peterson in the message, if you have a message paraphrase, he talks about doing cartwheels. He says, not only will I rejoice in the Lord, I will joy, I will actively joy. So what what are we understanding there? We're understanding that it's something that radiates out of it, something that's visible. Not just a joy we feel in our insides, but a joy that changes the way we walk and talk and live. As a church family around here, over the last six months, we've been talking about the first of our vision pillar, uh, the first of our vision pillars, which is radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. We wanna be people who have a confident expectation Not in our desired outcome, but a confident expectation in who God is. And when we have a confident expectation in who God is, there is a peace, not just that we hold internally, but a peace that radiates out of us. A peace that radiates out of us. He says, I will joy, or I will take joy in the ESV. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I love how personal this has become the God of my salvation. If you look at verse 13 of chapter three, he says about God, you are a God who's working to save. You're a God who saves your anointed. You are are a savior. And he's saying that in a broad way. It, It is true of God. In a broad way, God is a savior. He works to save his anointed. Praise him for that, right? But it is possible to believe that God is a savior broadly, to believe that God saves his anointed in a sort of broad, sort of worldly, generic sense, and not truly believe that God is your savior. I love the fact that he makes it personal. And here, give me too, when I say believe that God is your savior, I think there are many of you who believe that God is your savior in terms of the fact that Jesus came and he took your sin upon himself and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He rose from the dead and extends to you by his grace resurrection life. You believe he's your savior in the fact that you believe you're going to go to heaven someday and that your sins are forgiven and that you've been justified before God. That Jesus is an acceptable substitute. You believe he's your savior when we're talking about the cross. But you don't believe he's your savior right now in the midst of whatever circumstance you're facing. You think he can save you from hell. You think he can save you from sin and death. But you don't believe that he cares or can save you in the midst of your immediate circumstances. You're thinking of God as a savior broadly. But you're not thinking of him as your savior. We talk a lot about the fact that God is a redeemer. And when we talk about God being a redeemer, we don't just mean that he's a redeemer in the course of all of human history, that is true. But what we mean by the fact that God is a redeemer is that he redeems everything. He redeems it all. Every circumstance, every moment. Every dispensation of justice, he redeems all of that because he is holy and good because he isn't just God the Savior, he's God my Savior. You think of Jesus in terms of caring about you? Or do you just think of Jesus in terms of caring about the sins of mankind? He is your Savior. Habakkuk says not just God is a Savior in 13, but I take joy, I will joy. Joy in God my Savior, my Savior, my salvation. Habakkuk, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So we've seen him in two responses. We've seen him rest or settle down while he waits for God to do what God has said he will do. He's gonna rest. But not only is he resting, he's joyful. He takes joy. He exhibits joy in God, his savior. You might look at that. I certainly would look at it and go, okay, that's all great. Good for him. Way to go, Habakkuk. Good dude, right? I'm proud of you, man. You were kind of a punk at the beginning of this book. You were kind of bossy. You were talking back to God. No, no, no. But look, I like like the fact you've come around the corner. That said, I don't really think, I mean, I don't really think rest and peace and joy, I don't think those things are possible for me. Like for a Bible character, maybe. But I can't find joy in my own life, right? If you're feeling that, the question you're asking is how? How do you rest in what God has promised? How do you find joy in God your salvation? Well, he gives us his how also. And we'll look at this as we finish here this morning. He says in verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. That's the first piece. God the Lord is my strength. This stands in stark juxtaposition with what we've seen about the Chaldeans throughout the rest of this book. Throughout the rest of this book, you can look at chapters one and two, but the problem with the Chaldeans is what? Their strength is their God. Their strength is their God. I don't want to freak you out, but it's possible that some of you in the room, even though you believe Jesus is the king of the universe and he died for you and whatever, that functionally, your strength is your God. Right? You're in the same boat as the Chaldeans. What is it you're depending on day in and day out for the normal courses of your life? You're depending on your intellect, your experience, your wealth, your knowledge, your physical strength, your beauty, whatever. Well, guess what? That means your strength is your God. Habakkuk says, not me. I've recognized I don't have any strength. Remember back at the beginning we are looking at after he thinks about who God is? After he thinks about who God has been and who God will be, what happens? His strength is God, his strength is meaningless comparatively, he's a quivering lip. He's a melted bone, right? He's a quivering pile of goo on the ground. He's not dependent upon his own strength. He doesn't have any strength. He says, the Lord is my strength. I want you to see the juxtaposition because God must be our strength. That's what living by faith is. God is our strength. We cannot allow our strength to be God. Habakkuk has figured this out over time. He says in 19, God the Lord is my strength. To what end? God the Lord is my strength. To this end, he says, He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes my feet like the deer. The deer, uh, there's, there's some famous psalms that use the same picture, the same uh, metaphor the deer was thought of to be nimble and agile. He's got these little feet, but the deer is able to traverse these rocky outcroppings, these mountaintops. You've probably seen mountain goats or deer at the zoo that can climb all over the side of a cliff face that you and I could never climb on a and they just kind of boing, boing, you know, just kind of hop from spot to spot. I'm sorry you had to see me do that, Right? <laughs> He says, God is my strength, and what I mean by that, I mean he makes my feet like deer feet. What's he saying? Well, I recognize, Habakkuk is saying, I recognize there's some steep hills ahead. I recognize there's some huge climbs ahead. There's some high mountaintops before me, some heavy things yet to come. But God, in his strength, makes my feet like the deer. He says this, he makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places seeing a steep and difficult climb ahead he recognizes god's strength as the way he will achieve new heights friends do you see a steep and difficult climb ahead or are you living in fear that there's a steep and difficult climb ahead well if you're if you're hoping in your own strength to traverse those heights no wonder you're panicked there are steep and difficult climbs ahead for each and every one of us but if god is our strength he then makes our feet like the deer. What does that mean? It means that by his power, he enables us to do what would otherwise be impossible. To traverse the heights, to ascend in the midst of impossible circumstances. To ascend, right? To ascend. He says he makes my feet like the deer. He makes me go to new heights. Uh, coincident, not coincidentally, but importantly, high places in the Old Testament often refer to pagan centers of worship. There are some 40 times in the Old Testament where when God's people are called to go and destroy a place of pagan worship, it's referred to as a high place. So not only is he saying God's going to take me to new heights, but he's saying God is going to equip my feet to enable me to traverse what would otherwise be impossible circumstances in the effort of destroying pagan strongholds in my life. Places where my strength has become my God places where I've made an idol and worshiped it, but there is no breath in it. God will enable my feet to do what only a deer's feet can do, and that is to traverse these difficult climbs, to take new heights in my own life, and to root out the pagan worship that's been planted there, and to re-obtain the ground that only belongs to God in my life. God is my strength. He has rest. And he has joy because God is his strength and God enables him to traverse new heights. I'm reminded of Second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 where Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's he saying here? He's saying, in the midst of the insurmountable odds, in the midst of the steep and rocky crags of life ahead of me, God enables me to climb where I couldn't climb myself by his strength. So I have rest and I have joy. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content... I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We said it already. Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed. There is still punishment coming to the people of Judah. In fact, by the time he writes the end of this book, he may already be in the midst of that. There is still punishment. God hasn't relented of that. There is still God's wrath coming upon his people. His circumstance hasn't changed. You know what's changed from Habakkuk 1 to Habakkuk 3? Habakkuk has changed. Can I tell you this morning, church, your circumstances might not change. I know that's not what you want to hear. I know you want to hear me say, hey, you know what, just be a good Christian, sing the songs as loud as you can, and everything's going to be rosy and rainbows and doves landing on your shoulder and people feeding you grapes or whatever. Your circumstances might not change. Habakkuk's circumstances didn't change. You know what changed? Habakkuk. God will change you in the midst of circumstances. By his strength, he will enable your feet to traverse rocky heights, to root out centers of pagan worship in your own life, to traverse and ascend in circumstances that would otherwise be impossible. And when you recognize the strength of God to transform your feet, to traverse those rocky heights then you'll be able to rest, to quietly wait in the promises of God, to find joy in the midst of no flowers and no grapes and no grain and no, no, no olives and no sheep and cattle. That even when your hopes for the future and your pleasure in the present and your investments from the past are laid to waste, God, by his strength, will enable your feet to rise above. The message of Habakkuk is the righteous by faith will live that we as people would put our confident expectation in the power and strength of God to redeem every circumstance even the hard ones for his glory and our good would you pray with me God I pray that you would take this truth this idea of resting in you and finding joy in you our savior and that you would make it real for us that we would recognize that you are our strength and that you transform our feet in order to enable us to take ground through the midst of difficult circumstances that we never could have taken if strength was our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.